Hey, everybody, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal's Basecamp Podcast. I am your host, Eric Wilbur, and I am, whoa, joined in studio by my co-host, the great Mike Specian, who has returned to us from his knee surgery last month. Michael, welcome back to the show. Well, not welcome back to the show, but welcome back to the studio. <laughs> Eric, it's good to be back in here. It's good to be out of the house. Um, you know, it's good to be able to go upstairs and downstairs. What have you been watching on TV? Have you caught any Netflix series or you mean you stuck know, watching old ski movies? Absolutely nothing on TV. Like that old Reading books, sound. but I've had a lot of work to get done. It's ski season. It's selling season for retailers. And, um, you know, there's been no downtime. It's just been, I've been home. That's, well, it's great. Great to have you back. I'm great to, glad to hear you're feeling better. Are you still looking for March to be back on the Hill? Nope. This month. This month. Wow. That is incredible. Okay. Um, I, could, I could go right now, Eric. The problem is I just want to make sure everything's all set. Yeah. Well, modern medicine. I mean, applause for that, right? Modern medicine. I can tell you, I know everybody's, so many of the listeners have had ACLs, MCLs, full knees. It's not fun. My wife asked me if I would do the other one if I had to do it right now. I go, no, I'll, I'll wait a little bit. Unreal. Well, we're glad to have you back. And we are going full steam in here, as Tom Warner would say, full steam ahead. Into our next guest is going to be Kristen Ulmer, which is like landing a great big fish. Like She is the, the expert. Well, I don't know if she wanted to be called an expert, but she has built a career or a second career around discussing fear and addressing sort of looking into your yourself to find answers and not to how to deal with anxiety. And it's funny to to take her earlier career as a big mountain skier. And now she's considered, quote unquote, the expert on fear. And how she got to that stage is truly fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking with her. It, it is fascinating. All of us have been on the ski hill at one point or another, whether you're a beginner, whether you're an intermediate or an advanced skier, have been on the hill going, oh my goodness, I, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at the, your first trip up Tuckerman's is a great example. You climb, climb up the left gully and you're standing there and you, you don't want to make the first turn because if you fall, it's going to hurt. And it's so steep that you don't know if you can. And I think what is tremendous about Kristen is that she took a step back. She left skiing in reality and started to figure out what made made her tick first, which is true in all of us. I was I was obviously grew up watching her as part of the North Face Extreme team and in, in all the Warren Miller movies. But I, I was lucky enough in 2019 to be at her induction into the, the Ski Hall of Fame. And I was really, I, I, I haven't read her book yet, but I'd like to, that's kind of next on my list now that I'm, that I'm talking more about this and thinking more about it. Because look, wh whether you like it or not, whether you think so or not, you've got the fear, you've got anxiety. It's something we universally deal with. And I think that in a time and an age where mental health and mental problems in this country are, are so prevalent, that facing our fears and addressing our fears and really kind of coming to grips with them would help us personally and to be quite honest as a society, but that's a big task. Yeah, I, I think for this podcast, I think what I hope to get out of this is for each person that gets out in nature, whether it be surfing, whether it be uh, whitewater paddling, or whether it be skiing. I hope people, myself included, can take something special out of this of how to deal or how to make that next step to keep ourselves safe, first off, to push our envelope of sorts, and lastly, to make our experience in the skiing world more enjoyable. All right. That's absolutely true, all of that. We're going to have Kristen Ulmer. Up next on the Basecamp Podcast, stay tuned. She'll be up right after this. All right, welcome back into the Basecamp Podcast. We're pleased to welcome on the line here a legend in skiing, the Hall of Famer, Kristen Ulmer, who grew up in Henniker 
uh, New Hampshire, went on to an extreme racing career and now, not extreme racing, extreme skiing career, and now is the expert in discussing fear. Kristen Omer, welcome to the, to the show. Howdy. Great to hey, be here. Hey, Kristen. We are extremely excited to have you on. I just saw, oh goodness, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks ago, a piece on WMUR on Chronicle, and it was like, oh my God, we need Kristen on this show. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm in Las Vegas, thus the background. Can you tell us a little bit about the background? For, the, for those it's, of us who are listening on the traditional form of the podcast, well, you got to go to our, this is how we get the YouTube viewers, you see? You've got to go to our YouTube channel, just search New England Ski Journal on YouTube, and you can see Kristen Ulmer's glorious background, which she's going to describe to us right now. It, I'm in a, a suite in a hotel called the Cosmopolitan, and it's a woman's naked back. <laughs> and I'm sitting in front of it. It felt appropriate somehow. Best, nice. best background in the in the room. <laughs> well, well, welcome to the show. And those of us who are new to the show to just realizing that you've stumbled upon this because of the background, welcome to you as well. <laughs> hey, Kristen, you, you're a New England girl, right? Oh, yeah. I'm from Henniker, New Hampshire. All right. Pat's Peak. We love Pat's. We love what Pat's does for New England and what they gave us in you. Oh, well, that's sweet. This Thank was, you. I'm sorry, this was in the Weir's time in 2019, Amy Patton wrote it. Yes, of course, she, she learned to ski at Pat's Peak. She skied in jeans and didn't wear a hat. I sent this to you to kind of preview our conversation, and you said not true, that you did wear a hat. So we've already got a little bit of controversy right out of the gate. So can you, kind of, can you settle this for us? Like, was there a hat or was there no hat? This is obviously pre-helmet days. I don't think I wore goggles. I, I'm fairly certain of that. Right. And I did ski in jeans until I was 23 years old. Me too, Kristen. Oh, actually, no, let me take that back. I got that wrong. I skied in jeans until I was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And that included my first season skiing at Snowbird in <laughs> a deep, with a lot of powder. And finally, my boyfriend at the time, I crashed and I had so much snow down the back of my jeans and he was scooping it out and I'm crying because it burned and because it was so cold. And he said, that's it. I'm not going skiing with you anymore unless you get a pair of ski pants. So I bought a, a $40 pair of ski pants and then I, I skied in those. And then after that, I was sponsored. <laughs> made it, made it easy. Not bad, but, but, but not <laughs> by Lee. By, by what? No, definitely not. By <laughs> Yeah. Well, you made it to Squaw in 1989. Can you give us a, view of going to Squaw and how that sort of created your career? In the early days of my ski career, I was competing in moguls. And I was doing that with no goals or intention. Mostly I was just wanting to hang out with my friends and go on cool road trips. And But I took last place in mogul competitions. But I, um, so I wasn't a very good mogul skier, but I was really good in the air. And I thought that I could use my powers of conviction to to talk this guy, Eric Perlman, who was filming what was then called the North Face Extreme Skiing video series, into auditioning my skiing for his movies. Now, I'd never jumped off a cliff before, but I drove to Squaw Valley and I had just such a crummy car. I had no heat in the car. It was January. And I drove all night, no sleep. Slept Well, I tried to sleep in the parking lot. I got there at like 4 a.m., and a bunch of famous skiers woke me up at 7 a.m. with a knock on the window. And I, I jumped out and we had early ups like 7 a.m. to go up the mountain and, and jump off these cliffs called the Palisades. And Squaw Valley is now called the Palisades. But and so I get to the top of this flat top with cliffs below. There's cameramen there. I've never been film skiing. I've never jumped off a cliff skiing. I'd never thrown a back scratcher, which is what all the guys were doing off the cliffs back then. And these guys were famous. Scott Schmidt wasn't there, but he was part of the team. But the Egan brothers and the Delorier brothers. And I'm like, okay, well, clearly what I need to do to get in this movie is jump off one of these cliffs and throw a back scratcher. So I did. I did three of them. And I landed them all. And guys had never seen any girl do anything like this before. I had no idea. And then they were loudmouth. So by that afternoon, everyone in Squaw Valley knew my name. 
by the end of the week, everyone in the ski industry knew my name. And by the end of the month, I was having articles come out in all the major ski magazines calling me the best woman, big mountain extreme skier in America because of my ability to jump off these cliffs, which I'd never done before. But like I said, I, I had no competition. So, and the fact that I landed them and, and did it as well as the guys, that was really unusual back then. So you ended up on the U.S. moguls team, correct? Yes. Yeah, so I, I see my ski career in two completely separate categories. So I have the mogul skiing, and then I have the big mountain extreme skiing and the filming. And the mogul skiing is something that I really, I had no training for, except for a, the reason why I got into skiing is because you get out of school early in New Hampshire on Wednesdays and free equipment, free lessons. It's like the, the first one's free. They just try to hook you. Pat's Peak is like this dealer in skiing and just kind of get you hooked. <laughs> and, uh, but aside from that, I'd never had any formal training. And like I said, just to talk about my mogul skiing career in, in a separate category is one day I just got really good. I, actually, how I got really good is I went to Asia for four months to work on my self-esteem, traveled by myself. Made myself as ugly as possible because I, I know that my self-esteem was based on being pretty and because it was also based on being a pretty good skier. I also gave myself the rule during that uh, trip to Asia for four months to not talk about skiing. So made myself ugly, didn't talk about skiing and just tried to figure out what else made me me besides those two, those two things and what made, gave me confidence. And I came back from that trip, hadn't thought about skiing all summer. And next thing you know, I started winning everything. I literally went from last place in mobile competitions to winning everything I entered to make nationals. How nationals work is you get a chance to try out for the US ski team. And if you beat one of them during that competition, you take their spot. And I didn't beat somebody, but I took seventh place and there's six women on the U.S. team. And then there was an injury with the, one of the women. And so then I got her spot the next winter. So I literally went from last place to World Cup, skip Norams, all of that in, in one year, um, without any formal training, competing against girls that had the best training that money can buy, who'd been groomed their whole lives to make the U.S. ski team. It was pretty cool. It's one of the proudest moments of my life, actually. But it was a little overwhelming because I didn't know what to do about the fear in the gate. And I felt like I had imposter syndrome and I, I just felt a little over my head. I, I All of a sudden, there's thousands of people screaming and cameras in my face, and I wasn't used to that. And I wasn't prepared emotionally for that. And I did not do well on the U.S. ski team. So I had to make a choice. Like, am I going to do freestyle skiing, mogul skiing, or am I going to do the big mountain extreme skiing? So meanwhile, I was being offered money to go heli skiing in Canada to jump off cliffs into powder. And so for me, the, the choice was pretty obvious pretty quickly that that's what I wanted to do instead. And that was the end of my mogul skiing days. And I, I kind of not, I haven't really skied moguls since. Wow. That's fascinating. But, and I wonder, because it's such a precision now in moguls, do you think that you could do that today with the same sort of awakening that you had in Asia? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, obviously, the awakening you had in Asia changed you in some way that led you to do this against the precision timing of all your competition, which I just find fascinating. Moguls are now being made with a snowcat. I believe that's what they use. And they're very symmetrical and perfect. And back when I was on World Cup, it, they weren't. They were just naturally made. And we would catch air off of the moguls and land in the moguls. There would be no chopped up landings or anything. And so it was definitely, and we're also on skinny skis. So it's definitely wilder, more dangerous, more erratic, not so repetitive. Um, it, it's So I guess the question would be, would I be able to do, well, I'm not quite sure what the question is, but I'll just answer the question I you asked. <laughs> I'm not really sure what the question is at this point either. I guess I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by, by your ability to not be the best on the mountain training wise and obviously completely wipe out the competition and, and be the, and do that be, because in part of what you experienced on your own in Asia. I just came back with confidence, self-esteem and the reason why I, so right now I run these mindset only ski camps called the Art of Sierra Ski Camp. And they're 
if somebody were to ask me for a technical tip at the camp, I would tell them, no, I don't do that. You got to hire a ski instructor for that. I'm the poster child for it's all mental. I mean, if you look at my history, just with the mogul skiing, I, I didn't have any formal technical training. And I went from last place to being on the U.S. ski team. And mind you, I didn't thrive on the U.S. ski team, but I made it on the U.S. ski team. So that's pretty cool. And I did that entirely through just working on my self-esteem. I didn't visualize skiing. I didn't think about skiing that whole summer. All I did was just work on my character and who I am as a person and my confidence as a woman. And that's what actually tipped me over the edge to making the shift from last place to U.S. ski team in one season. So that, I mean, it's interesting. Who does that? And could that happen today? Absolutely. People say that sports are 90% mental and the other 10% is mental too. Now, that's not really true. I would actually add that it's also uh, opportunity. I, I always joke that the best skier in the world is sitting around a dung fire in Africa right now and they've never seen snow. And they, yeah. they don't know that they could be the best skier. So opportunity, physicality, like your genetics, what kind of body type you have. Do you put on muscle? Well, it definitely pays to be shorter if you're a mogul skier or a big mountain extreme skier. It's, but the mindset is the right relationship with sphere, which I kind of had, but once I got in the World Cup gate, I, I didn't know what to do. And the, the coaches, they weren't really paying any attention to me because they were just waiting to see if I would be worth their time. But I didn't know what to do about the fear. I was, I was so out of my comfort zone once I was in the World Cup gate. And I, I didn't thrive because I, I, I didn't know how to deal with the fear. I tried to do the things that we're always taught to do, which is put it out of my mind or convince myself that I didn't care, rationalize it away. None of that stuff works. I mean, it might get you through a moment, but it just builds upon itself. And eventually the truth is going to come out, which is that you're overwhelmed by fear. So I think the reason why I thrived when I was filming movies is because it was just an audience of maybe five people. And I really thrived by showing off to those five people, especially if they were men, especially if they were cute. <laughs> and and then if there were cameras out. Um you know, one thing that I really credit my longevity in the sport, because I was considered either the best in America or the best in the world for 12 years, was because I would only take big risks, at least in terms of, we call it mini golf, where you, you ski short, very intense lines with a lot of airtime. We, I, I would only do that stuff if there was a camera rolling, because I was, I always had cameras on me. So there's plenty of time for me to do that. But like if I had skied in Squaw Valley where there's pressure to ski like that every day, all day, even when there's not a camera rolling, like on a storm day, for example, we don't typically film during storm days. I probably would have broken my body so bad or probably killed myself a thousand times over. Like I really saw my big mountain extreme. We don't call it extreme anymore, but we did back then skiing career as a job. And when I was out there, I was working. And when I wasn't when there wasn't a film camera there, I wasn't working and I wouldn't do that stuff. I would still ski hard, but well, to be honest, for like 10 years there, I don't think I skied a single run that wasn't judged, filmed or photographed. But anyway, it was, it was an interesting time for me, but I definitely saw it as a job. And, and I, I, I was probably the only one in the scene that wasn't partying hard, like drinking a lot of alcohol and staying up all night. Like I, I really took it seriously. But in the best, most fun possible way at the same time. Like I had a blast during my ski career. Well, you, you said a couple things there. First off, we just we just came out of the Waterville World Cup and we did a piece going into that with Wayne Wong and Ken Toferi. You know those names uh, mm -hmm. from the original freestyle event at Waterville. They said the same thing about the moguls back then to the moguls today. And that was pre when you were skiing moguls, of course. But the, the other thing, the mental part, we had Doug Lewis on as we entered this season about training and he just drove home the mental part of skiing. We, Doug's as vibrant as anybody I know with passion about skiing. Burning Man, you know, we had Burning Man. We had the chaos, uh, chaos of Burning Man this past year with all the rain. 
Tell us about your experience there and speaking with the Zen master. Okay. The Zen master is a different conversation. So let's, okay. well, actually it's a good, well, the, the Zen master comes after Burning Man. So let's start with Burning Man. So 2003, I was fully sponsored, you know, sponsored by Red Bull, Nikon, Ralph Lauren. I had 12 different paid sponsors. I had four different, cause I was a writer. I had four different monthly columns in four different ski magazines around the world, which they're really hard to get. It's a monthly column and they don't give those out freely. I had one in Australia, New Zealand, one in Europe, one in Canada, one in America, skiing magazine. And then I also was hosting a bunch of different television shows and I, I go to Burning Man. So I'm, I'm at the point basically where I didn't even have to ski anymore. All I had to do is drink a can of Red Bull at a party and I'd get paid. I go to Burning Man. I'm there for five days, my first time. And I didn't realize then what I know now, what the shift was, but I, I'm all about radical self-expression. And that's what Burning Man is about. And I felt like the only place that I could radically express myself was while skiing. And then there would be, I was a fear addict. So I was always looking for the sketchiest radical self-expression stage. That's another story. I've, I've had over 50 near-death experiences. <laughs> I'm really lucky to be alive. But <laughs> anyway, so I, I, I go to Burning Man and it's radical self-expression. And I realized for the first time in my life that, oh, I don't have to risk my life in order to feel this way. I can just go to Burning Man. And I went home and my boyfriend at the time was freaking out. My parents were freaking out. I'm like, no, I quit. I quit everything. I spent 20 minutes. I wrote a letter to all my sponsors, to the magazines, to the ski industry, basically, and said, I'm, I'm just done. I'm, I stopped doing the television show. I stopped writing for the magazine, everything. And uh, there was a, a magazine called, well, it was an online magazine called the Skiers Journal. And they published my letter for about a half an hour. And people were so pissed. I, I was really surprised to hear that he never showed me any of the comments but he had to take the letter down and I think it was because I really was living the dream that everybody wanted which is I'd gotten to the point where if I wanted to go skiing in Sweden I'd have like three different companies fighting for the right to pay me to go like I had I had it all like I had because of my writing style being so funny and um, I'm selling the sexy wild side of skiing. I know that Powder Magazine had written an article about me and they called me the protoplasmic mass of the ski industry and the biggest icon the ski industry never expected. So I really had hit a point in my ski career where I really was epitomizing the dream. And to write that letter and walk away was very offensive to a lot of people. And I don't mean people in the ski industry so much as just skiers in general. I, I don't think they could understand it. And, and I never looked back. And, and like I said, all my friends and family were freaking out saying, no, you should wait. It's only been five days since Burning Man. Like, give it a moment. And I, and I had invested the money that I'd made as a skier in real estate. And so I had, I had money and I, I didn't have to worry about that. So I didn't need to rely on my sponsors or continuing to ski professionally. I, I just realized that I really wanted to do something different with my life that maybe built upon the skiing. Now, I didn't know what that was going to be. And, but I'm just going to pause here because maybe you have some questions before I start talking about the Zen Master, which came next. No, please tell me about the Zen Master because I'm way into it. I, I realized that I'd been the best in the world for 12 years. That's a long reign of terror. <laughs> and I remember when I was the year before, so it was 2002, I get a phone call from Outside Magazine. So Burning Man was in 2003. So this is the year before. Well, a couple of things happened. First of all, I'd had the worst near-death experience of my life um, a few years prior. And I'm like, this is this is crazy. I'm going to die if I keep skiing this kind of terrain and doing the stuff that I'm doing. The second thing that happened is Outside Magazine called me and they they said, hey, we're doing an article about dangerous sports athletes, best in the world, different sports, and we're we're doing one on who we think is the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world. I'm like, I'm used to phone calls like this, thinking they're going to write the article about me. And they said, well, we're calling you to let you know that it's not you. <laughs> First time in 12 years. 
So we want to interview you and, and get your reaction to that. And we want to tell you the person that we've chosen and interview you about her. And let me tell you, I was so relieved because it was just a long time coming and I really wanted to be done, but I didn't feel, I, I didn't feel like I could walk away from the sport until I, there was somebody that was following me that I admired and respected and, and thought was going to continue the reign of terror, <laughs> like I like to call it. So they picked up a, a Swiss woman, Francine Morillon. And I said, Oh, absolutely. She's a better skier than me. She's super, she's charging so hard. I had actually had the near death experience I mentioned with her. And anyway, the way, the way she was just so hungry and so charging. And then they interviewed me about her. And I said, the, the only downside about Francine is she'll probably be injured. She'll be, probably be severely injured or dead within a year. And, uh, and that's what happened. She didn't die, but she, she broke her back because she was really reckless. And you can't be reckless in this, these sports, not these danger sports at this level. And she, she went to do a backflip off of, in a train park off of a jump with a hard pack landing, but she'd never done a backflip before. And if I was going to do a flip, I would train it on a trampoline first, then I would train it on a water ramp into water. And then the first one I would do would be into powder. Like there's just a whole progression, but Francine decided to just go for it onto hard pack. And she's in her thirties at the time. So she broke her back. She was paralyzed, I think for four days. So thank God she made a full recovery. So she was best in the world, I'd say for a year. And then there's a whole series of women after that. But so just a whole bunch of things led up to me going to Burning Man and saying, okay, I am just done. And like I, like I said, I didn't have to continue skiing. I could still stay in the ski industry and I could probably still make it a living uh, as a professional skier today and writing for the magazines and hosting television shows and all that. But I really just wanted to walk away and, and learn what else is going on in the world. Like some people can eat pizza for lunch their entire lives and they love it. I need to break it up. I need to go have sushi or something or Thai food or like, I, I don't think that I'm the type of person that will want to ski a hundred days a year for the rest of my life. And, and so I, I actually not only walked away from my ski career, but I stopped skiing almost entirely. I did want to continue getting free skis though. Like it's hard to give up the free <laughs> Who stuff. Who doesn't? It's hard to give up the lift tickets. It's hard to anyway, but I was just tired of being Kristen Ulmer in capital letters. I just wanted to, well, as I like to joke, I realized that the only thing that I'd learned from my ski career is hedonism and the gratification of my massive ego. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to be a little bit more introspective and figure out what I'd learned from the last well, at that point, 15 years as a professional skier, it's a long time. And so I started these mindset only ski camps called Ski to Live, which is a play on the words live to ski. And I hired a sports psychologist to facilitate them. And I mean, he was a great guy. He was really smart. He had a PhD, but I realized this guy had no clue what made for great athletics. And so the, the first camp came and went and, and, uh, and then the second one was sold out. And I'm like, I've got to find somebody that's more compelling. So I, I hired a, a Zen master who had a history with athletics, but was not a skier. And I learned more. It was a four-day ski camp. I learned more about myself and why, what the magic was for me as a professional skier that made me so good in the first 10 minutes of my four-day ski camp under his leadership than I had in 15 years as a professional athlete. And I'm looking around the room and I mean, we're 10 minutes into a four day ski camp and the entire room is holding back tears and just like looking shocked because of what they just learned about themselves as well. I'm like, okay, this guy is good. And I studied with him for 15 years. Now I facilitate my own ski camps called the Art of Fear Ski Camps. They're mindset only. They're really cool. And I'm not a Zen master. But I studied with one for a really long time and I learned that I had the gift of facilitation and it, the, the camps are probably some, they're just the proudest thing that I've done to date. They're so good and they, they really affect people's, not only their skiing, but their lives. And I've seen people go from 
being an intermediate skier to being a expert level skier in one run. It's real. They're really powerful and I'm really proud of them. With, with that, with that being said, what are your four different ways of dealing with that fear? I know you, you have four different ways. Yes. So most people deal with fear the first way, which is resistance to it. And resistance is a catch-all word to describe any form of trying to meditate it away, let it go, take a pill, drink alcohol. Yes, I put meditation and, and drinking alcohol in the same category. I mean, meditation is great, but if you're using it to feel better, or to have less anxiety, then it's a coping mechanism. And these coping mechanisms regarding fear are what I, are these resistance patterns. And it seems like great ways to deal with fear, but really they're ways that we don't deal with fear or we replace it with calm or replace it with joy or love or passion. So level one is res- resistance. And almost everybody does this. And if you take a ski school lesson or work with a trainer, they're probably going to teach some form of resistance, rationalizing it away, that sort of thing. So level two, which is progressive, and you're finding a few people teaching this now, is acceptance of fear. And as I'm explaining these, imagine fear as a person that's with you while you're skiing. So resistance to this person, the whole reason why you're going skiing is to hang out with this person. That's what makes skiing so interesting is the fear. And I don't mean scared or afraid. That's not how fear manifests for most people. So Level one, resistance to this person. Level two, acceptance. Like, okay, I know you're going to be here. It is what it is. Third level, emotions want to be felt. So level three is feeling your fear. And when you feel your fear, you're naturally in your body. And that's a better place from which to perform than your head. And then level four, which is where the magic happens for me and for most people that are the best in the world at their sports, especially if they're dangerous, is they have intimacy with their fear. And the fear is actually the thing that takes them into the flow state, the intimacy with it, that is. And the fear shows up as presence, focus, excitement, aliveness, and is the whole reason why I was a skier in the first place. I was, I loved fear. I loved feeling it. I loved the, the sensation of that excitement and the intimacy that I had with it took me into the zone. Um, Stephen Kotler, he wrote a book called Stealing Fire, and he's the reason why everybody's using the word flow as being the optimal high performance state these days. He took Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow and, and made it more popular and modern today. And he said to me, he's a good friend. Um, he said, when there's fear involved, flow comes for, for free. And I said, no, 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 that's not true. When there's fear involved and you have intimacy with it, flow comes for free. So those are the four levels. Oh, that's interesting. It's fascinating. Everything you're talking about is fascinating. In 2017, you released your own book, The Art of Fear. What was the response? And how did you, what went into the the studying and the the mental sort of adjustment you had to do in your second career, totally focusing on becoming the expert on fear? What makes me an expert on fear is I'm not repeating anything that I learned in college or a psychologist, people that get their PhDs, like this is nothing that you'll find there. Um, Self-help gurus, doctors, scientists, like it's great. They've come up with amazing ways to buy us time and limp us through the United States of anxiety or anxiety disorders and, and given us great coping mechanisms to get through a moment or a day. So what I'm doing is kind of teaching the radical opposite of all of those techniques and tools. And how I learned them is when studying with the Zen master, I learned a facilitation tool called voice dialogue. And everything that's in the art of fear, the book that I wrote and everything that I teach about fear and the four levels and all that, this is not my personal philosophy. I've actually spoken to the voice of fear through voice dialogue with, I mean, thousands, tens of thousands of clients at this point. And I just ask fear, like, hey, why are you acting so crazy? Why are you showing up as an anxiety disorder? You know, what's going on? And and basically what fear has told me through my clients is what I teach. And and I show the clients. Like right now, yes, I, I have these mindset-only ski camps, but I also work with people as a Zen therapist to help them with anxiety disorders. And all I do is facilitate a conversation between them and their fear. And then whatever fear says or whatever fear asks what to do, 
or ask the the client what to do about it is what the client does. And then these anxiety disorders resolve very quickly. So what I'm trying to say is that none of this that I teach or what's in the book is my personal philosophy. It all comes from talking to people. You, I think you just brought it up a question I wanted to ask off the cuff there about the United States of anxiety. And we talk about fear and anxiety and a level of confidence. And you look at this year that we're in now in 2024, and we don't really know what's going to happen politically. We don't know what's going to happen across the board in a lot of different things. How do you sort of, I don't want to say take advantage, but how do you sort of want, how do you spread the message, right? How do you spread the message of how to deal with fear? Like, what do you do on in, in your life that helps people deal with fear or even anxiety. just how to address it? Anxiety yeah. to boot. I mean, I mean, it's obviously mental health is something that is everywhere a problem. And it's, I think the ability to address it in certain situations helps tremendously. And I just wonder like what, well, how can you bring your expertise on fear to a nation that, you know, is probably going to be pretty fearful this year and going for, going further? Let me start by saying that anxiety is fear. Right. We just don't call it fear anymore because fear has such a stigma attached to it. Trust me, I am anxiety ridden as there are, and I know it's fear, right? I, I've, be, I've come obviously to address it as fear and knowing what it is. And knowing what it is in my family, right? And, and recognizing it as fear in those little pockets, now that I know what it is in me, is really has helped me. So it's like that awareness of that is step one. Yes. Calling it fear and being more real, raw, and honest about what it is, is definitely helpful. So let me just back up at the beginning. I'll try to make this as succinct and clear as possible. Here's exactly what causes anxiety and what causes an anxiety disorder in crystal clear terms. So we have this amygdala and all data is run through this primary filter first. And we're talking 11 million bits of data per second. And it's not a thought producing part of the brain. It's an emotion producing. It's the manufacturing plant for fear. And if there's a threat, it'll send a shot of discomfort called fear into our bodies. And it's supposed to flow like water through a hose providing us on point intuitive physical reaction without thought. And then after the threat is gone, so too is the fear after about 10 or 90 seconds. Now, when I say fear, I don't mean scared or afraid. It very rarely manifests as scared or afraid. It's just any kind of discomfort in our bodies, like that's our fear. So what happens is because we fear shame each other, we, fear is just an embarrassment dad says there's nothing to be afraid of when we're younger, even though there is like none of us are in flow with our fear anymore, more the way nature intended. Instead, what we do is we hide it. We're embarrassed about it. We try to conquer and overcome it. We fight it. We run away from it. This is an interesting point for skiers. Fear does not hold anybody back from doing anything on the mountain. We get that wrong. It's our unwillingness to feel the fear that holds us back. So nobody knows how to deal with the fear and we're all just running away from it, fighting it, freezing in the face of it. The fear does not make us freeze. It's our reaction to the fear that makes us freeze. So we can call it kinking the hose. We kink the hose. We, we stop the flow of the fear. We try to get rid of it. Next thing you know, the fear builds up in our system and starts to flood into maybe our chest or our throats or if we live in our heads, it'll flood into our heads, kind of like trap water tends to do. It has to go somewhere. And next thing, it's looping fearful thoughts or anxiety. So trapped fear behind a kinked hose is actually anxiety. Now, if you keep this up over time, or if you kink the hose on like a class six rapid of fear during a trauma or something or after a trauma, you will wind up with an anxiety disorder where you have perpetually trapped fear now exploding out the cracks in the form of a panic attack or just being in your head as OCD, just repeating itself over and over again that you continue to try to control. It's like all of this can just be very simply explained is that none of us are in flow with fear. And so the solution to all these anxiety disorders or anxiety itself is to do the exact opposite of what we're taught to do, which is unkink the hose, get back in flow with fear the way nature intended and how you do that is you turn towards the fear that's maybe keeping you up in the middle of the night or that's chattering away in your head and you learn how to feel it, which is level three, 
And then if you can have intimacy with it, then it shifts from being a hold back into actually the greatest experience we have here on planet Earth, taking you into a flow state, for example, while skiing. So uh, our relationship with fear is so crucially important. It's the most important relationship that we have in our lives. And I like to see fear as a person it, because it lives in your body and with it, you share a heartbeat. And if you're fighting with it, you're fighting with yourself. You're fighting with the nature of life itself. And you're kind of missing the whole point of why we're skiing in the first place, which is we're here to challenge ourselves. Well, with challenge comes fear. So if we learn how to be in flow with the fear again, then not only does it not hold us back, but we're actually able to expand who we are and, and get better and better and actually have this amazing dance with fear out there in the mountains. So it's, it's not only resolves anxiety disorders, but resolves fear issues on in skiing, but then also fear becomes our greatest asset and ally out there in the mountain. That, and that's the secret that I realized that I had that made me the best in the world for so long in my incredibly dangerous and difficult sport. It wasn't the radical denial of, of fear. It was actually the radical hunger for willingness to feel in, in intimacy with fear that made me so good. Let me ask you this. In this day and age of big mountain skiers, we'll throw in big mountain bike riders at the Red Bull Rampage, Rampage and so on. Are any of these athletes coming to you? People are pushing the realm almost to the dangerous level. McConkie really pushed it. But now it just seems like it is happening more and more in the big mountain situations, hucking off cliffs thinking you can do anything. Are any of these athletes talking to you at all? I love that you asked that question. First of all, let me talk about Shane McConkie. I used to date him, actually. He's a really good friend of mine. And if he were alive today, he would say, yeah, intimacy with fear. That's the secret. How do I know this? Because I've seen an interview where he said that. And, uh, but nobody, nobody's talking about this. No. And Probably the reason why, well, <laughs> that's a, I mean, how much time do you have? Like I interviewed with Red Bull to be their mindset sports coach. They're like, when can you start? And then they ghosted me, which is funny because I used to be sponsored by them. The thing is the predominant attitude on mindset sports coaching is the level one resistance to fear, blocking it out, rationalizing it away, calming exercises, breathing exercises. So I, I interviewed 26 different world-class athletes in dangerous sports, climbing, base jumping, that sort of thing. Out of those 26, only three of them knew about the secret, which is the intimacy with fear. And that was Laird Hamilton, Will Gadd, ice climber, Jeremy Jones, snowboarder. They all said, yep, intimacy with fear. Before I even brought it up, I'm like, wow, okay. Now they're the best in the world at their sports. So the other 23 athletes that I interviewed, 20 of them just said, because I would ask, what's your relationship with fear? 20 of them just started saying traditional things. Oh, I don't let it get the better of me. I, I release it. I, I, I believe in myself and I calm myself. Basically level one resistance, coping mechanisms. And I find that the best in the world have intimacy with fear. And then number two, number three, number four on down have resistance to fear. I mean, there's basically two ways to get to fearlessness, radical inclusion of fear or radical denial. And, and what happens is over time, I see this with ski racers in particular, they just start getting injured time and time again once they hit about age 30 because they're so rigid to block out the fear. There's just consequences for blocking out the fear, including losing your connection to your intuition. And so that makes it super dangerous. And so, 20, 20 of them would just give pat answers, like I, I basically resistance answers. But then I, I shared my information with them and 20 of them nodded their heads. Oh my gosh, that's it. So hard. I thought they were going to break their necks. And they realized that they, they actually, what they say they do versus what they actually do is very different. And then the remaining three people of the 26 were so adamantly in denial of having any fear whatsoever that I thought they were going to punch me in the face. One of them like stormed out of the interview and I, I'm like kind and gentle. I'm like, well, what do you think about this? What you have is intimacy with fear. No, I don't have any fear. And, and like pulled the microphone off, walked out of the room. 
another person, I thought they were going to punch me for even suggesting they had fear and started to on camera cry a little bit at the mere thought. I mean, it's, it's wild. Once you start to to dissect people's relationship with fear in these sports, they don't know what they're doing. They're the poster children for what to do about fear and they don't know what to join. As for whether they're coming to me to work with me a little bit. I'm a little lazy. I'm not very good at marketing. And to be honest, I, I would absolutely, I've worked with several athletes and the, the transformation is instantaneous. They're, they're, so I hope more people call me. But right now I'm mostly focused on helping people with anxiety disorders and not helping people be better athletes, except for through my ski camps and occasional private clients. Sure. Mom, well, I, I could have this conversation for hours, but we're up against it. I do have to ask you that you've, you've traveled the world. You've had the, the world's finest cuisine. Where is the Pat's Peak cookie rank? I would say I had chocolate malt pudding at Ruth's Diner in Salt Lake City. I would say the chocolate malt pudding and the cookie, favorite desserts in the world of all times. I mean, if you're like li- listening from Tokyo, like you got to fly to Pat's Peak for the cookie. There's some skiing there too, but yeah, the cookie. <laughs> They're so good. I don't know what they, I think they put cocaine in them. I don't know what they, they do there. Like there's something about those cookies that are dangerous. <laughs> well, I've got one last question for you. When are you coming back to Pat's Peak? Well, my mother just died. I'm sorry. Oh, our condolences. Yeah. And so I would always go back to visit my brother and my mother. And, and I was doing these, their Women's Only Wednesday facilitation camps. But now that my family is not going to be so rooted in Pinnaker anymore, I don't know when I'm coming back, but I look for every opportunity. My brother still lives in Pinnaker and I, um, the next time I visit him, I'll just make sure that I visit it in winter and then I'll, I'll go skiing at Pat's Peak with the ladies again. Perfect. Sounds like a deal. Kristen Ulmer, thank you for joining us on the Basecamp podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. We will be right back after this. Eric, it is just amazes me. We just had Kristen Almer on, and I, I just think of all the great big mountain skiers that have come out of New England, from from the Egans to the Deloriers to the Noel um, Noel Lyons to Kim Reichhelm, to the list just goes on and on, and it just amazes me that they're all coming out of here. Yeah, I mean Pat's Peak, Pat. Do you think that Pat's Peak can produce world-class skiers? Well, obviously, yes, it can, because it has. And Kristen Ulmer is such a, I think she's such a fascinating person to to talk with, particularly in a sport where fear is part of the game, right? Like, who was it who told us recently, if you're not, fear keeps you alive on the mountain, right? And if you're not, it's like I tell my kids, if you're not falling, you're not trying. And they kind of make fun of me for, for doing that, but it's really true. I mean, you, if, if you're not facing the fear and you're not facing what it is that's holding you back, then what kind of progress are you making? Yeah, exactly. I, I think what one thing that really sat with me at the end of that interview was the anxiety part, mm-hmm. because honestly, not until that moment had I equated anxiety with fear, but she's right. And I think what Kristen is doing right now with her book, with her camps, she's not worried about making you a better skier. She's worried about making you a better person with dealing with what's inside all of us. I mean, this is such a, it's maybe not the perfect example, but there's this, there's this quarterback played for the Patriots about 20 years ago, Tom Brady. And he, I don't know if you, if you recognize this story, but he was the 199th pick in the draft in the NFL draft, 199. And he went on, he was a bench player and he went on to win six Super Bowls at a starter in the NFL. Now, Tom Brady was not the most talented player, obviously, but he had a mental sort of capacity to him that faced fear, I think in a lot of ways. Right. And that, took those negative aspects that were going against him. And he had such strong mental capacity that he was able to turn that, those criticisms into a reason to perform 
and to drive him into his career. That's a, I'm, I know that's a much different example than what we're talking about with Kristen, but it does go to show you that for all the, and you talk about with, with what Kristen did on the, on the World Cup circuit or the U.S. ski team and how she was attacking moguls and not even having any real training, but it was her awakening in sort of Asia that kind of led her there. I think we are more and more now addressing the mental side of things, right? But I think we're only just really tapped into just how much of our mental, I keep using the word capacity, it's not the word I'm using the word, but how much of our mental stamina is in sport that we're just beginning to realize now. I think it's even more than we've kind of hit on, on this very level. Yes. I I look back to the first time I met Doug Coombs and his ability to compartmentalize. He was a great athlete, but he was more a great mental player. And I think all of this, everything Kristen is talking about, isn't about being an athlete. It's about the mental maturity to be able to compartmentalize, which I love that word, each piece of the pie. I've been, I've been up at, on the head wall at Tuckerman's with Pucker Factor. I've been on shoots out west with Pucker Factor. But being able to absorb that fear and realize that it's real and you can use it to your benefit if you so desire. It's fascinating. I can't wait to dive into her book and learn a, bit, a little bit more about, about myself, really. I mean, that, that's what it comes down to. Mike, thank you very much. Another great episode. Hope you, by the next time we see each other, you've been out on the hill. I'm going to be out on the hill and you're going to have those heated socks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> more, more on that in a bit. Thank you very much. For Mike Specian, I'm Eric Wilbur, editor of the New England Ski Journal. This was the Basecamp podcast presented by Country Ski and Sport. We will see you next time. New England Ski Journal's Basecamp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.